Today is July 2nd, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 96. It's all about privacy, dark patterns, and correcting machine behavior with your brain. All here today on Human Factors Cast. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined in studio by Mr. Blake Arnstorff. There he is. <laughs> Just that look on your face. In studio? In studio. We're here. Yes, in we're here. Person Live. together. Why are we in studio? I don't know. We'll find out in a couple episodes, right? There you go. Yep. We're approaching episode 100. We'll find out. We're getting there. I think so. Not only am I joined by Mr. Blake Blake Break. Mr. Blake Armstrong. We also have a very special guest in studio with us as well, uh, making his second appearance on the show. Uh, you might recognize Mr. Brian McDonald from our UXPA Boston bonus episode. Brian, how are you? Doing well. Good to be back. Good to have you. Okay, so we're all here in studio. We're hanging out. I wanted to know what's going on with you guys this week. Brian, I'm going to start with you because you've been on a bit of a road trip, coming of age trip, if you will, right? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to do a big road trip after I uh, graduated my undergrad, but uh, I'm starting grad school in August, and so I'm road tripping around the country now. Started in Boston, made my way down to Atlanta, over to Austin, and now I'm here. Now you're here in good old San Diego. We're going to take you to get some good, uh, authentic Mexican food tonight, because you don't have that in Boston. That's for sure. It also isn't snowing here, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. There is you it go. still snowing in Boston this time of year? It feels like it. Oh, my goodness. Excellent. All right, Blake, what's going on with you, buddy? I, I got to know. Oh, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> it took a while to get the show set up, so that was a lot of fun. That's But the biggest thing that's probably going on with me, Nick, is probably what's going on with you. It was our wonderful day at work. Little little interaction with some loud noises trying to get work done. And, I, you know, I thought about that all day. How do you get around that kind of stuff when you're at work? And I got to say, listening to music was the only thing that saved my productivity today. Yeah, I yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And, and to anyone listening, uh, I just want to emulate the sounds really quick. I, I hope this translates well. But it sounded like this all day at work. Like, no joke. That's it's a little scary and ominous. But I, yeah. I know, right? It, that's what it sounded like. I don't know how that translates to audio. We'll find out later. Um, but that's, yeah, we were dealing with that all day uh, because of construction that was happening. And, well, I'm glad you found some way to be productive. Um, you guys, I did something this weekend that I'm super proud of. And I, uh, I don't know how to describe it. So we actually talked about this on Human Factors Cast Infinite at, at one point where we're kind of talking about displaying uh, pride in our collections of things like uh, CDs or DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever it is, right? Uh, and this weekend, I kind of did this project where I took a poster board and lined it with magnetic strips, and I'm able to display my steelbook collection. So you guys can see it here. I, I'll post a picture on the Slack about it, but it's just on my wall now, and it's just all my steel books hanging up on the wall there. That's amazing. It came out so much 
I don't know, when you described it, I had no idea what it was going to look like, but this looks better than I would have ever imagined. That's awesome. Yeah, so I, I was super stoked about it. It's uh, it's really cool. You can see there's two spots remaining. There's one spot for Solo, and then uh, two more. that I We need to figure out how we're going to fill that up so that way it looks good. But you can totally expand it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I found myself, like, flipping the steelbooks over to find the optimal sort of display pattern for um, what's most visually appealing, but also what kind of conveys your collection the best and i don't know i just had a great time with it you're the man yeah i did mention our slack you can go check out i'm gonna go post that picture right after the show up in our slack and you guys are gonna remind me because we're all going out to dinner after this <laughs> <laughs> 20 bucks that we all forget <laughs> yeah no kidding uh but i do want to plug just a couple things going on here we have ahfe international uh that is later this month july 21st to the 25th in orlando we got hfes happening in philadelphia and that's from October uh, 1st through the 5th. And then we have HFES Australia coming to Perth. Uh, we like to plug those at the beginning of every show to let everybody in the community know what's going on, where they can attend to get some updates on uh, some of the research breakthroughs going on in the field. Um, but you guys, you know what time of the show it is? What time is it, Nick? Well, it's time for Human Factors News. <laughs> it's the part of the show all about human factors news this is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors this could be anything you want it to be automation psychology design vr whatever it is as it's fair game as long as it relates to the field of human factors blake what do we got up first this week? All right. So up first, the California legislature just passed one of the most robust data privacy bills in the U.S., known as the California California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. The bill largely mirrors protections offered to European citizens under the most recently implemented General Data Protection Regulation, better known as GDPR. It's likely to drastically change the way that American companies store and trade and consumer information, at least for Californians anyway. So among other provisions, the new law will require companies to declare the types of data they will collect from users and with whom that data is shared. It further grants consumers the ability to opt out of having their data sold by companies like Facebook and will prevent companies from charging consumers money or providing them with fewer services if they do not allow the data to be sold. Top internet and telecommunications companies, including Facebook, Amazon, Google, AT&T, and Verizon, all of which profit by selling data. Wow. I didn't know they all profited by selling data. But they all Surprise. profit by selling data belonging to users, at least initially, opposed the ballot measure. Though Facebook and Verizon both dropped their opposition in May, the bill was likewise opposed by Uber, which, along with Facebook, has been subject to federal recent federal investigation into handling of data practices. Now, you know... It, maybe it's because we have Silicon Valley here in California, but I'm glad this started here in California with so many of these companies are headquartered at because this I think this will have a long lasting implication for how we start treating consumer data. And it still surprised me that we were making they were making so much money off of just selling consumer data. It doesn't surprise me that the, the money was being made. I mean, that's that we talk about that all the time, right? That's how these companies are profiting off of us as consumers. They are basically taking whatever information we allow them to get and selling it wholesale to whoever wants it or whoever will take it. Uh, the thing that's surprising to me is that it took so long to get some sort of protections in place for the consumer, right? And and I mean, I know all this is kind of new. Uh, it's a new frontier for, um, you know, these big tech companies. I mean, if you think about it, right, the internet's only been around for 20 years. Uh, improper, right? I mean, um, 
So, so the fact that these big companies are finding ways to sell data and and um, profit off of this, I understand the lag time that it takes for um, you know law and and legislature to catch up. Like I I I really am glad that the GDPR kind of kicked everybody in the butt and said, hey, let's get moving on this privacy thing. And uh, uh, you know, it's this is nothing but good news. Yeah, my favorite thing is it might actually make companies pay attention to the data that they have collected because one little thing in the article says that it enables consumers to sue companies for up to $750 under certain circumstances if there's an unauthorized breach of their data. Equifax, anyone? Oh, man. Well, imagine like all the companies that I think we've talked about on this show that were just like leaking data left and right. So, yeah. So that has like big implications for sure. Um, and, and I think it's great that they're going to have to start, the companies are going to supposedly have to start really informing you what data they're taking and what they're doing with it. And if you opt out of it, the fact that this, this kind of legislature has already thought about the fact that, oh, okay, well, if somebody opts out of something, I'll just, you know, throttle their service in some way, but now they can't do that. So that's, that's an interesting. Yeah. There, there definitely there. will be a few companies that just don't offer services if you have a Cali address. Oh, yeah, I can see that already happening, right? Yeah, but uh, I guess probably the big boys like Google and Facebook aren't just going to be like, yeah, we don't really care about the seventh largest economy in the world. No, thanks. Yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> right. I mean, but but OK, so what does this mean for us as consumers and, and really the user? Right. So how does this kind of transform the way that we interact with these big companies that do that in the past have sold our data? Um, and what does it mean going forward? Right. I, I would argue that something like this would mean um, obviously more protections are in place for people who consume this type of thi- this this type of media right so uh, i don't know i i can see this being nothing but a good thing for us where especially if they do collect data it does it mean that and, and we'll get to this a little bit in our next story does it mean that everything is kind of laid out for you uh, from the get go right where is your data being used who gets access to it does that mean that all that stuff is then elevated um, in, uh, and I'm trying so hard not to jump to the next story cause I like that one too. But you know, does that mean that everything is kind of elevated? So that way there's no sneaky patterns, no, um, no hidden sort of, uh, terms of service that, that basically say, Hey, this is, thank you for your data. This is what we're going to do with it. Um, and can we get to that straightforward, like TLDR version of the terms of service, right? Like that's that's ultimately what I want because those terms of services are so long and I'm I'm really mixing the stories here and maybe we can talk about them wholesale, but um, I don't know. Like what, what do you guys think this means for the user ultimately? I mean, you don't read everything when you update iTunes? No way, man. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I fear that a lot of companies are going to do things that way if they can get away with it. Yeah, I feel that same way. I mean, it, this this ultimately puts the power back in users' hands, right? But you have to be able to digest the information in a way that makes sense to you, and so you can know where your data is going. And I'm 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 making the assumption that companies are, not, are probably not going to make it super easy to understand what's going on in their terms and services agreements. I mean, this that does that's kind of like a design implication, right? Like how are people or how are companies going to get over the fact that people are not going to read through these entire documents? Are they going to present it in some kind of different UI, something that's very simple, or are they going to keep kind of like hiding pieces in the background? I don't really know. Well, I don't know. Maybe with our next story. Uh, we can we can think about let's I, I just want to move on to the next story because I think these two can be talked about 
uh, at the same time. And I think it's it's worth talking about these two at the same time because one is kind of reactionary to the other um, and not necessarily, uh, you know, one came out before the other, but they, they came out around the same time and they both informed this topic. So why don't you go ahead and read the next news story there, Blake? Yeah, let's get the wholesale view. So Facebook yeah. and Google steer us into sharing vast amounts of information about ourselves through cunning design, privacy, invasive defaults, and take-it-or-leave-it choices, according to analysis of the company's privacy updates. So as the new GDPR is implemented across Europe, users of digital services have been confronted with new privacy settings through numerous pop-up messages. Unfortunately, the Norwegian Consumer Councils just published an analysis that demonstrates companies appear to have little intention of giving users actual choices. Through the council's analysis, the company's pop privacy pop-ups, it's made evident that consumers are pushed into sharing through into sharing through standard settings, cutting design choices and confusing layout all as an illusion of choice. Okay. I think that answered a lot of questions for like what they, what companies were actually doing. It seems like a forced right. choice here where you don't act, where you don't really get to get around the fact that, okay, they should be designing this in a way for you to understand. Yeah. I want to get into a couple of these points. So you mentioned, um, standard settings, cunning design choices, confusing layout, and illusion of choice. I want to get into what those exactly mean here. So standard settings, this is uh, basically pre-selected settings. This is the dark patterns that we've talked about on the show multiple times. Um, and this the study basically came out and said, well, in many cases, both Facebook and Google have set the least privacy-friendly choice as the default, right? Something that will benefit them, something that will allow your data um, to be kind of expo uh, uh, exposed and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, guys? Just kind of be exploited. I yeah, guess. that's the word. Yeah, yeah, X. Yeah. I knew it was an X word, exploited. Uh, so, I mean, that's the standard settings. These are the dark patterns that we've talked about before on the show. Uh, then you have cunning design choices. And this is, this is where it kind of hits the, I mean, all this kind of hits the human factors um, nook, but the cunning design choices are sharing of personal data and the use of targeting advertising targeted advertising are presented as exclusively beneficial through wording design wording and design often in combination with threats of loss of functionality if users decline and this one has huge implications right i mean think about like you know you're you're basically at the mercy of these uh terms of services and they are making that abundantly clear if you break their user policy then um you can no longer use their service and it's like well you have to give us your data or else, basically. That's basically what this this cunning design choices bullet is talking about here. Yikes. And that's one of those things where it's like in the legislation we just read for California, at least. I don't know what this is like in the GDPR. Like you're supposed to be safeguarded against that. Like it, you're getting services throttled or getting kind of functionality taken away. But it's it sucks for us because in a lot of cases when, when you're talking about Google or Facebook, they're all art. They're in for in the case of Google. There's definitely alternatives, but I don't know if their data privacy policies are the same or similar. Um, but for Facebook, I mean, there's really not a whole lot of alternative choices you can make to have the same kind of platform. So they've got you kind of in a hole. MySpace. Oh yeah, let's go back to MySpace. <laughs> Friendster. Yeah, I'll, I'll put you guys in my top eight there. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you, Blake. I think. I, I don't know how this interplays with the GDPR, especially for the California thing, right? And if they are supposed to protect against this thing, what what does that 
ultimately mean for the way that they phrase these topics, right? Does it mean that they are going to be upfront about it? And and maybe we can talk about this in conjunction with the next point, which is confusing layout, right? So this is the privacy-friendly choices require significantly more clicks uh, to reach and are often hidden away. So this is like if you're on Facebook, right? Facebook's a platform that a lot of us are familiar with. If you go on to Facebook, you have to go up into settings and then you have to go into security settings. And I think we actually did this on Infinite at one point where we kind of did this live. We did like a walkthrough of the actual settings for both Instagram and for uh, Facebook to even to like pull data that they had collected on you. Right. And and it ended up being that it was it was easier than we thought, but also for the common user, for someone, the, the everyday Joe who was as plugged into this stuff as we are, I don't think it's going to be as easy for them. It's tucked away in a place that is hard to find. I will say, though, to Facebook's credit, I did see this the other day where they said, you know, it's time to update your privacy settings front and center, right in your feed. So, I mean, they got that going for them. I don't know if that's a result because of the GDPR. Uh, <laughs> my I guess is a result of all of their bad press, but they did kind of do a pretty good redesign. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good that they're elevating that stuff you know, to, to the forefront. But I, I still think there's a lot that we can do better for uh, making sort of these um, these privacy settings available to the user. Uh, and then the last one here is illusion of choice. And this one uh, really kind of rubs me the wrong way. I think this one is incredibly misleading when you think about it. So in many cases, the services obscure the fact that users have very few actual choices and that comprehensive data sharing is accepted by using just by using the service. The feeling of control may also convince users to share more information. See, that, that one's the biggest problem to me because the, especially because there's probably a bunch of apps that either, before like all this stuff with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook really started like hitting the news that I'm sure never asked me if they wanted to collect my data and they were always doing it. And that's that's the part that I guess kind of freaks me out the most, or is is also confusing. Like you're not you don't necessarily have to consent to your data being collected at all, right? Yeah, and they can they can do it, and that's scary to me. And uh, I don't know. It's studies like this that kind of bring light to these types of things that are being exploited, uh, that are exploiting its everyday users, and all this privacy stuff together is is a story that um, you know we'll be sure to follow. And kind of update y'all, y'all. <laughs> Blake, you're rubbing off on me. This is the in-person thing, update man. Update y'all. <laughs> uh, you don't say y'all. But. I, I really don't. <laughs> I'm like the least Southern person you'll ever meet. Yeah, I mean, you got a little twang. A little twang. A little twang. A little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think this has big implications for privacy going forward, both the, uh, both the, um, you know, the California bill and also this study, I think, bringing to light these issues for the public. I think that is the ultimate sort of um, the best way to go, right? Because knowledge is power. And if, if the general populace is empowered with this knowledge, then they can arm themselves and say, hey, look, you're using my data in a way that's not okay. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I've I think that's hopefully people are much more concerned about making sure that all like across their social media, especially that they're really trying to pay attention to what kind of privacy settings they are allowing. Um, and I definitely encourage anybody to kind of check out online, like either through just Google search, like how to protect yourself on Facebook or any of that kind of stuff. Because I mean, for the, for the next foreseeable future, although these kind of pieces of legislature are coming into the United States, at least I, I still feel like we're going to be suffering dark patterns for a little while. Yeah. 
Brian, did you have any clothing, closing, closing thoughts? <laughs> I got a lisp today. I don't know what's going on. It's a weird day, guys. Like, just behind the scenes, we took over an hour setting up in this new studio with all the podcast stuff, so it's a little... Uh, <laughs> it's a brand new setup. It's all kind of confusing. Oh, man. Why? 100 episodes. You'll find out. All right, Brian. Sorry, I took the floor. Now, I have no real closing thoughts besides that if companies can do it, they're going to do all of the dark patterns until someone forces them to not. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if they can do it, they will. And, uh, you know, until the law says they can't. And I think, you know, it's up to us to kind of keep pushing back, say we have rights, and uh, see what happens. Well, that's the nice thing about being like practitioners in a de- in a design style field, right? Like we do have to some degree say in the products that we help produce and things like that. But you, I mean, you at the same time you get stuck, or you don't get stuck. I mean, working for Google is a great thing. I mean, I know a lot of friends that I have enjoy it, but you do kind of you're kind of at the mercy of whatever the company is going to do design wise or what their kind right. of values are. And I think it's like up to up to not just like consumers, but also people that practice in the field to really push the envelope towards like making sure the end user is the one that's in power, not just the the millions and millions of dollars work making company, you know, or billions, I guess in this case. Right. We have to be the advocate for the user, and ultimately, you know, what they see. Uh, we, we have to advocate that, that they see up front. Um, and this is kind of the point that I was talking about with the California bill. Like, mm-hmm. can we provide a TLDR version of your privacy settings? Hey, look, we're going to sell this to these companies. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, still provide all the legalese down below. But what does it mean for me as a consumer? Like, I, 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 would, I would love that. Yeah, and like understandable language too. Like I understand how how the world works, and we have to have legalese in there. But like, spell it out for people right. within like a couple sentences per like point that they have to worry about. Hey, your age, sex, location are going to be sent to this uh, advertising agency. I, that that simple. That simple. All right. Well, before we move on, I just want to thank all of our friends over at Gizmodo. I'm going to mess this up for Bruker Redette and TechCrunch for all of our stories this week. If you guys want to follow along uh, with all the stories as we find them, you can check us out on Slack. Like I mentioned earlier, link to that is in the show notes and wherever you can find us pretty much. Um, and uh, we post those across all social media too. So Blake, why don't we get into the last story of the week? Oh, let's go. So how do you tell your robot not to do something that could be catastrophic? You could give it a verbal or a programmatic command, or you could have it watch your brain for signs of distress and have it stop itself. That's what researchers at MIT Robotics Research Lab have done with a system that is wired to your brain and tells robots how to do their jobs. The initial system was fairly simple. A scalp EEG and EMG system is connected to a Baxter work robot, which lets a human wave or gesture when the robot is doing something that shouldn't it shouldn't be doing. For example, the robot could regularly do a task, like drilling holes, for example, but when it approaches an unfamiliar scenario, the human can gesture at the task that it should that should be done. Because the system uses nuances like gestures and emotional reactions, you can train robots to interact with humans with disabilities and even prevent accidents by catching concern or alarming them before it can it's communicated verbally verbally this this lets workers stop a robot before it damages something and even help the robot understand slight changes to its task before it begins the team will be present presenting their findings at the robotic science robotics science and systems conference this year all right so this is a little this is kind of a lot to unpack in it seeing that it's a robot that's basically kind of reading your mind 
Yeah, let's unpack it. So basically what it's saying is that this robot is set up with some sort of preset automation and it is providing the human with some way to interject um, commands by, uh, well, in this case, it's by either uh, a a gestural motion or with um, an EEG or EMG waves, right? So uh, in in this example, so there's a video on on the website. Um, Basically, the robot is drilling into this uh, cardboard and the human is... When when the robot encounters a situation in which it's ambiguous or uh, potentially dangerous in in a, in a real world application, the human can say nope, don't do that, uh, and they can gesture to it, and and the robot would theoretically stop. Yeah, I could really see this working in the future for like a foreman on an installation site or a construction site. You could actually have like multiple robots working, and then that person could be like, oh no, wait, you're doing something wrong, Mister Robot. Yeah, I mean that's that's like another implication of it. it would be like a remote operated system, right? Like if somebody's sitting away from a bunch of robots that are working, just using because this this wouldn't be gesture based; it would just be brain signal based. But if you're like like let's say you're watching a UAV and it's right. like turning off, of course you could I guess think the correct. Uh, task or command and it could change its course or something you, like you that. You could still do gestures with, with uh, sensors in place at the at the pilot's Oh, yeah, because then you just feed it right back right. into the robot. Yeah. Nope, nope, don't do that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You looked confused there, though, there, Blake. What? <laughs> oh, it, okay. So I've got this funny thing where every time that we see kind of robots from MIT, they tend to put a nice little face on it. Oh, yeah, and they it, do. And the, just like, so for anybody who's not seen the article or watched the video, I mean, it's it's basically like a a one-legged robot that's got like a singular singular arm with a bunch of like action points on it and it's holding a drill but it has basically a small iPad on its face that it's like a little digitized smiley face. Yeah. Uh, so that's just funny. I mean, it's starting to humanize a robot, right? And without it, I mean, it, be, it might be a scary looking machine. And so that's what was going through my mind is like we, we continue to try and, you know, give pers- personas or personify like inanimate objects but i think that's ultimately how we're going to be more comfortable with robotics and ai and stuff like that having some element of it that you feel comfortable interacting with yeah i think the face is also a good feature because i think it uh changes if like it encounters a problem so it's not always smiling oh that's so that's how it communicates that like oh no it's stuck oh yeah yeah it's some sort of non-verbal uh feedback right so you can actually see in the video that we're referencing here, as as the robot makes a, st- a mistake, it, it does like a little frowny face. Um, and it, it basically is saying, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, didn't mean to, won't happen again, human overlord. Uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, it's fun to watch. And I like the face because, you know, it has no language barriers. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And that's a huge sort of point for human-robot interaction. Um, because there there are a lot of these human gestures that we need to translate to the robot so that way uh you know that are nonverbal because there's so much nonverbal communication that happens among humans like we are now in the same studio and i said that so many times but now we can actually read each other's faces we can read each other's body language when i don't know what to say somebody else jumps in and i do the same and you know if if you can kind of understand maybe even something like that could show how uncertain a robot is around a task right like happy face i know i'm doing the right drill job but if it approaches a situation where it doesn't understand then it could turn into like a neutral face or an uneasy face right because we have those uneasy faces 
Uh, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And then, you know, then the human will, will then be tuned into, oh, okay, well, maybe I should pay more attention here if it's a supervisory role. Um, and then they jump in and, and direct it with these things. I, I just think it's an it's a interesting way to, um, it's a novel way to interact with robots that we haven't seen before. I mean, we've seen EEG stuff, but, but this, is the, uh, this is preventing mistakes in robots. And I just find that interesting. Yeah, I really like it because you don't have to like press a button and remember and like always be there ready to press that button. You just know something's wrong and then the machine knows something's wrong. I think you bring up a really interesting point too, Nick. I mean, it's it's funny because when I think of like the verbal cues that you, we get when you're like talking to somebody, it's almost impossible to try and think of how you're going to teach all of that almost body language type stuff to a robot. But with just the face, I think that's enough to be able to communicate to a, to a human or potentially even between robots, but definitely to a human. Like, okay, something's not right with this particular robot during this task. And it's kind of funny how we're we're basically trying to recreate some some aspects of our own like biology and communication styles into something completely new. Right. Yeah. I I, I don't know. It's it's always so interesting to me. Um, do you guys have any other closing thoughts before we move on to it came from Reddit? Because we got a lot of good ones here today. Let's do it. All right. It's that part of the show again. It came from. It came from- <laughs> That's right, it came from Reddit. I am fumbling all over myself here in studio today. It's okay, it's a trial run. We're, uh, we're figuring stuff out here. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit uh, to bring you topics the community's talking about, you know? And any fair, any... It's a, <laughs> to bring you Reddit things to talk about. Reddit things, yeah. We're, t- we're talking... Okay, all right. You know what? I, I, don't, I don't even... We're talking... Any subreddit's fair game. As long as it relates to human factors and... Encourages discussion among the community. All right, nailed it. All right, take two. No, <laughs> okay. So we got we got a fair amount of time here, guys. I just do you want to just take these like cereal? Like let's do it. All right. So kind of cereal, c- cinnamon toast crunch. There we go. Okay. So this first one here is it unusual? This is uh, sorry. This is from uh, Luden's dude from the user experience subreddit. Is it unusual? I never had to do a UX design test or exercise during interviews. Uh, they go on to write. Recently, a friend who was trying to break into UX asked me how my design tests or exercises were like during my UX interviews. Her question made me realize that I was never asked to do any design tests or exercises during the countless UX interviews I have gone on in the past few years. Is this unusual? I recently switched over to UX from a related industry about three years ago. All right, guys, I want to hear from your experience. Um, We'll start with you, Brian. Have you experienced any sort of... uh, like a like UX design test or exercise during the application process. No, I've always just been like, "Hey, here's my portfolio," and then they go, "Oh, okay, cool." Or, mm, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's never any. Here's a cool test. Okay, that's I, just my. That's interesting. I mean, uh, how about in person? Like, did they ever interview you in person and do like any sort of uh, design challenge where you're supposed to come up with some sort of. Nothing, huh? No, I haven't yet. Everyone's just been like, okay, so talk about this and why you did this and why you did that. That's interesting. Blake, I imagine you have a very different experience. Actually, no. Really? Uh, yeah, because it, uh, here's why I think that's the case. Um, so for, for jobs that I've always interviewed interviewed for, I've not really had any design tests. And I think it's because of kind of what Brian's talking about here is like they look at your portfolio, they get a sense of how you think, and they'll ask amplifying questions. And also, too, this guy's saying that this was about three years ago. 
I feel like unless you were in companies like Google or Amazon or stuff like that, they really weren't doing a whole lot of this design challenge testing. Because even in the in the place that I work now, that's only been implemented in the past like couple of years, like adding in design challenges and stuff like that to make you think on the fly. Um, so I've never experienced it personally. And for other jobs that I've gotten, it's been kind of word of mouth. So they're trusting basically the person sure. who recommends you. See, so this they, they said they switched over to UX from a related industry about three years ago. That's not saying that their interviews were three years ago. So I've actually had a very different experience. Um, two of the three jobs in the most recent round uh, were they had a design challenge attached to it. Um, and... I don't know if that's just the nature of the job that I was applying for or, or what, but I, I found it, um, I, I found it a very valuable experience to my, you know, personally myself and, and one of, okay, so let me go over these really quick. So one of them, I won't name companies just to kind of be fair here, but one of them, uh, the design challenge was, uh, you know, design an interface for this unique situation. Again, I won't say the situation just, out of respect for the company. But um, so it was very much like, okay, well, what information do I have? And and how can I best come up with a design in, um, I think it was 30 minutes or less or something like that. And, uh, you know, you kind of use all your skills and, and that way it kind of informs them of your process. Now, uh, with another company, it was very different uh, kind of design interview or design challenge. It was very much like a... Um, if you think about a user research, right, the question was, and again, I won't name companies, but the question was, if you could design your own study um, that you had as much funding as you needed, how would you run it? What would you study? And what would sort of the um, research methods be for that? And I thought that was really interesting. And it was something I wasn't expecting at all for this kind of interview, because it really got it sort of your knowledge, your intimate knowledge of research methodology. And, you know, it, it also got it sort of your high level interests, like where do you see yourself in, in X amount of years, right? If you had all the resources you need to do this, how would you do it? I thought that was really interesting. And the third company I mentioned uh, didn't do anything like that. So I don't know. What do you guys think of that? I love the fact that you had to do that for like a research design position because, I mean, that's that really shows process for people like that. Cause I think that's the benefit of even doing these design challenges is watching somebody think kind of in real time, but that's, that's not always kind of analogous to what's going to go on in a company. You're going to work in a team and you'll have kind of bolstering, but at least get to get you an idea of what their problem solving skills are like. But if it's in the area of research, it's more of, okay, so how do you really, how do you define problems? How do you define solving what, how to understand that problem better? And then where do you see yourself in terms of technology in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years. So that's a really awesome, like I kind of take on it to apply it to a UX research job. Yeah. I don't even know if, it, if you would count that as a design challenge, but I always did. Right. Cause in that moment I was designing a research study. Yeah. And I think part of it too, I mean, it's, it, they call them design challenges, but to me, it's it's like I want to watch you problem solve. Yeah. Regardless of what the outcome of it is, whether you're designing something or you're talking about a study or you're saying like this is how I would do sales or whatever it is, right. I just want to see you problem solve. Right. And and it's all a matter of processing what information you have. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. It's all about processing what information you have, and also sort of what information you need and and how do you sort of work within the constraints that you are dealt. So I'm, I'm surprised that we have such a wide range of uh, experience on this. I'm not too surprised because I do think it is like two different methods because you can, like every interview I've had has always been like really deep into like 
the portfolio pieces, but it's like, so why'd you do this? What were your constraints? Why'd you do this thing? So I think you can still get a lot of good information that way. Oh yeah. Just from a different avenue, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's all, it's all different ways to get at the same information. I just, uh, I don't know if design challenges are on their way out or what, but um, curious to know that you guys haven't, haven't had one. Or maybe they're just less of an East Coast thing. <laughs> I don't, Maybe. Know. I don't know. I definitely don't think they're on their way out. I think they've gotten, I've seen or heard more and more people talk about them since I got my first job. So I think it's definitely like ramping up and can, it's going to continue to be like proliferating through companies because I, I think people want to see what you can do versus what's on your portfolio. Because that's, that's another kind of thing to talk about too is mm-hmm. you like, sometimes you get people's portfolios and they're super polished, but they don't really have the skills you need. Right. They've just like, they've had somebody help them with it. They couldn't really talk, talk through it. So this is a way to kind of weed that out. I, yeah, I agree. I think it's a way to get people to think on their toes and see how they kind of problem solve under pressure, right? Because if you think about it, uh, job interviews are a really stressful time. You're trying to put on your best self to sell yourself to this company, uh, whatever you're applying for. And and uh, you're also trying to sell your capability to perform the tasks necessary. And so all that on your shoulder, they're asking you to do something on the fly where you don't have all the information. And it's literally seeing how somebody thinks on their toes in a high stress environment. And I think, I think that's really valuable. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what, what your job's probably gonna be like, right? Yeah. All right. So we, we mentioned um, portfolios. I, th- th- it's kind of related to this next one here. This one is by the only Q uh, in uh, user experience subreddit. They ask, is a social presence necessary? Uh, they go on to write, this sub is a pretty diverse group, the, the user experience subreddit. So I'm wondering what y'all think about the need for a Twitter and Instagram presence as a UX professional. I assume it's very different for those of you working at bigger companies, versus freelancers, but I'm curious, can conventional marketing and networking work better or just as well have as fa- having a fancy Instagram account? Is it that much better? Is it that much harder, rather? Uh, this was going to be more of a career sticky question, but I think it might be interesting to have a fuller discussion on the topic. So let me get your guys' opinions here. Blake, is a social presence necessary? If so, why? If not, why? <laughs> All the whys. Uh, you know how I'm going to answer this question. Yes. It depends. Oh, uh, okay. No, I mean, <laughs> I personally, I think it, it'll help you a lot. I mean, they do make the mention of versus like being in a bigger company versus a freelancer. Um, and if you're doing freelance, you don't have any social presence. I think it'll really help you out. Cause I mean, you can start displaying different ways about how you think about things, making connections. Like it's almost a, just another marketing generation tool. Right. So it can be super helpful, but I think it's all also going to depend on what kind of company you're in. Because a lot of them don't want your work being shown or process being shown on social media, so you'd have to kind of get creative about how you're talking about yourself through those channels. Um, I, th- I think at the end of the day, it's kind of up to you if you want to put the effort into it, or if a lot of people like to keep it on kind of like a personal, um, personal life kind of thing when you're t- come when it comes to Twitter or you know professional stuff. Uh, I like to do a mix of both, to be honest, because I, I I feel like you through social media and the internet in general, we just have a lot more access to different kinds of people. Like I've been able to connect with people that have worked at Twitter or worked at Google through social media interactions. And so it's helped me kind of like understand how they work and also like just have meaningful discussions back and forth. So I, I think it, it depends on what you want out of it. And I think that's that's the better way to gauge it. Like if you're trying to build your network and get more clients, it's definitely something worth putting your time and money into. Brian, what about, what about you? I think it's important for the long game, but I don't think it's super important if you're like trying to get clients next week. 
But to me, the most important or the most useful thing is being able to follow someone on one of those feeds. And then over the like years, you see you, they keep popping up. So then you keep remembering them. That's right. I follow a bunch of designers and that's how I like remember all my fam- my favorite ones. Right. So so what it sounds like is if you want to be sort of if you if you want to have some sort of notoriety, um, then you go to social media. You establish credibility by sharing valuable information. Uh, and you have to be careful if you know you're in a company where you can't share that information. Uh, but and potentially finding creative ways could be a way to share information. So I, I like what I'm hearing. Me personally, I, I think a social media presence helps. Um, I don't like, I, like I'm a hard. It helps. I, I'm not saying it's going to get you a job. I'm not saying it is uh, necessary. I'm just saying I think it helps when recruiters or, or HR or whoever is going through your application they do Google searches on you. That's not, that's not, you know, a secret. They go out and look at you on your social presence. And if it shows that you are super involved in the community, that you're giving back uh, in ways that are beneficial, but not sort of giving away the secret sauce, if you will, about a company's secrets, I think that's helpful because then they want that associated with their brand. They want some, they want some sort of ambassador with a community that can go out and reach out and potentially pull in more talent if they know people. Um, I, I don't know. I just think it helps all around. Right. And I'm saying that in air quotes, it helps in the sense that, you know, it's not the end all be all. It's not going to get you hired. It's not going to, if you do it incorrectly, it could get you fired. So don't do that. Um, so you just be gotta be, gotta be careful with it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, if definitely. That's a great point. Nick. if you're going to have it, uh, if you're going to use social media and it's all personal stuff, definitely be careful. And privacy settings what's on there. Yes, Privacy Figure settings. Figure that out really quick. Because <laughs> if you thought like back when Facebook came out that they were screening it, they're definitely, recruiters are definitely screening all of that stuff now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, uh, okay. So the answer to that was it depends. Okay. <laughs> of course it was. Of course it was. Okay. So we got time for a couple more here. Looks like we got two. Uh, this one is, how do you like to create user flow diagrams? This one's from Stoic Assistant in the user experience subreddit. Uh, do you illustrate them in Sketch, another program? Is there a flow diagram template that you like to use? Thanks for your help. Blake, uh, I know you are an expert in flow diagrams. Yes, I am. I love flow diagrams. <laughs> They're my favorite. Uh, honestly, I... I don't know. I got this from actually watching you one at one point. Oh god. Yeah. So like it's it's great to have some kind of polished product that's in Sketch or Illustrator or whatever it is that you your design like weapon of choice. But at the same time, I think the best way to put these together is to actually just use sticky notes. You like putting them on a wall and being able to move move that stuff around, categorize it in a way that is meaningful and it's actually a much more collaborative process. Like there there's nothing worse to me than like getting something it's a, to some point polished enough to show somebody else and then you're going to have to just make a bunch of changes or redline a bunch of edits. I would rather have every all the necessary people in the room, even even if you can get a user too, right? Um, and being be moving parts of the workflow around. Like that's, that's just kind of how I like to tackle it. Um, I think a polished product, yeah, I'd put it in Sketch or whatever you really like. I mean, there are some other like flow temperate 
template diagram uh, programs out there. None of them are coming to my head. I know there's like plugins for both Sketch and Illustrator that help you kind of animate those things. But honestly, I like sticky notes and paper. Yeah, I'm trying to think of one right now <clears throat> that I just uh, was made aware of a couple weeks ago, I guess. I don't. It's basically, I wish I could remember the name. I'm looking through my emails to see if I can at least give them a plug. But um, apparently there is a program for iOS that allows you to take pictures of sticky notes. I will agree with you, Blake, that sticky notes is by far the best way to do things. You can move things around. You can collaborate with others in an easy way. Um, especially users, right? If you're if you're trying to sort of come to an agreement on what a task flow looks like, it's super easy to share with users and, and look at that. But there is a program, I wish I could find it, but basically if you snapshot the sticky notes on the wall, it will translate it into a digital XML file. Um, oh, that's pretty awesome. Which is really neat, right? So, and then you can manipulate it in XML uh, and it organizes it in just the right way, apparently. I don't know. I, I can't speak to it and I can't find the name. So it's out there. It exists. But uh, that's all I got. But I agree. I think Sticky Notes is a is a huge... <laughs> you know me, Blake. I, I wonder who pulled the... Uh, came from Reddit this week because uh, <laughs> workflows are, uh, are a big part of my life. And uh, He's the workflow master over there. Don't let him... Oh, convince I'm, you otherwise i'm really not i'm really not let's let's be clear uh i've just had a lot of experience with them <laughs> brian do you do you do workflow analysis and and what tools do you use the only times i've used them is uh sticky notes paper and then eventually illustrator okay so you, you do them in illustrator um i will plug one other tool and blake i don't know if you have used this one at all draw io no, I've heard of it, and I, I've, I think it was you that turned me on to it, and I had every intent to use it, but never did. Okay, so it is a, for those listening, it is a free tool online uh, that allows you to do XML um, workflow generation. It's, it's pretty cool. It, it's a, a little clunky, but it's free. So if you're an aspiring student or a freelancer, it could be a good way to sort of build things uh, in a, in a, digital environment. I will say though, echoing you, Blake, sticky notes are the ultimate way to go. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. Yeah. And it, you made it, you made another great point, right? And that's that when you bring a user in, it's just a lot easier to move things around. And then you can also observe them and the way they, they're thinking. It's kind of like a double edge or you get two benefits for the price of one. You're kind of mm -hmm. watching how they think, but you're also getting very valuable like process data or flow data. So I don't know. Again, it's like another reason to keep the sticky note around. Right. You can get that live validation, but also, you know, not just collaboration with users, but collaboration with other professionals that you may be working with too. If, um, you know, one, one configuration of the, uh, workflow makes sense to you, but that doesn't make sense to them. You can actually physically move things around, take pictures, so that way you can uh, version control using pictures. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of benefits to just doing physical. Um, if you have to document using digital uh, pictures, that's ultimately like, you know, and, and then once you've refined a lot, then you codify it and you actually put it into a digital format once it's like completely thought through. Um, and that's all I'll say about workflows. <laughs> okay, we got time for one more, so let's actually go ahead and get into this one. I said actually because that's in the title here. Um, this is, is it actually possible to get into UX without a college degree? This is, again, from the user experience subreddit by bthug27. Uh, <laughs> Woo! So uh, 
This is by Bthug27. They go on to write, Now I do have a bachelor's. It's just not in UX. I don't mind going back to school to get a degree in UX or Human Factors. This is a Human Factors podcast. That's okay. We can we can branch out, though. Uh, but I was wondering if it's possible to shift my career towards UX without getting a traditional degree. Are there any chances of working in UX pretty good? Uh, are the chances of working in UX pretty good without a traditional degree? Or is it more of an anomaly? Um, I'm going to open this up to you first, Blake. Oh yeah, put me on the spot. No, this is this is this would have been tough for me to answer had I not like had the experiences that I have recently. I guess. Uh, so I come with a, from a human factors background with a master's, so it's a it's a little bit different. I understand the methodology that underlies UX, so I've I've had more luck getting jobs because I'm able to like show some kind of transfer. Um, if you have some sort of bachelor's, I, f- I feel like the best way to pitch it or help yourself get the job you want that's in UX is volunteer for some kind of user experience, or if it's human factors, same thing. Volunteer in a human factors or a user experience group, like as part of their board or something like that, because usually that can help you, one, figure out the skills, get mentorship, find like small jobs that you can do, and show kind of like proof of your ability to manage yourself as a as just like a freelancer or anything like that. Um, but having some kind of background, because I've worked with a lot of people that are trying to move from like marketing and insights into user experience design. So it's all about being able to spin what your experience in the past and ha- how it actually could benefit like doing a UX job or how you see it tra- your skills translating. So I, I don't know if like not having a traditional degree, like if you don't have a degree at all, I feel it's going to be a lot harder, but it's all going to be about past experience, how you talk about it, how you're framing it into like user ex- or user experience or the HF world. I still think you're going to have to, especially if you come from like a non-research background or like not even a design background, you're going to have to kind of like augment that through like reading, taking online courses, again, like getting mentorship through like kind of organizations or something like that. But I think it's possible without a degree, but it's definitely going to be harder. Yeah. Uh, Brian, I want your thoughts on this before I jump in. I wonder uh, what B-Thug really means when he says UX, because that's kind of a huge term. Right. I do think it's easier to get a design job than a research job if you only have a portfolio, because then you have like the clear evidence that you can at least make stuff look the way that they want to have and... Right. That sort of thing. And I know you can like volunteer with groups and go to hackathons and get lots of experience that way. Yeah. Yeah. I will, I will say though, I think, I think both of you are right. I think that, but I will say, I think there's sort of a prejudice towards, um, towards the research position. I I don't think, uh, take it or leave it for what it is. I think there's more of a value, at least in the community for, uh, research positions, right? UX research, um, versus UX design. I think the research part of it is is heavily skewed towards having a relevant degree, whether or not that's a bachelor's in, in uh, human computer interaction or master's in human factors, um, you know, or a bachelor's in design. It doesn't matter. I think, I think having a relevant degree is more important for a research role because then you're kind of uh, trained from, you know, grassroots. You, you've gone through a program that has been sort of forged for the thing that you need to do versus having very applicable skills in one sense and then transferring them over. That's just my opinion though. I don't know. I'm curious if you guys think that's the case or you guys get that sense that there's some sort of um, prejudice towards those that don't have relevant degrees. 
Yeah, for UX research positions, it's it's definitely going to be like two. I feel like twofold harder because you see a lot of companies like it, it's not just limited to Amazon and Google anymore. Too like UX research positions are not just going after people that have had that title before. They want like a cognitive psychologist. They want somebody that's right. got a like a doctorate in like you know HCI. So, so they're, they're it's also been coding for 12 years oh wait well that's a whole nother <laughs> topic to have like have a unicorns discussion on yeah they want like the super ultra unicorn phd style but i don't know I, I have to tend to agree with you and let the only caveat i have is if you're somebody and you'll probably disagree with this to some degree but I, th- I think if you have experience coming from something like doing marketing insights, so you're used to dealing with a okay. lot of data and trying to figure out what's going on within like a certain set of numbers, but still you're not going to have like usability testing knowledge. You're just, right. That's not going to be there. Um, so I, I think you make a good point. I, I still think that you're able to spin it, but if you don't under if you're going for like a UX research job that's doing heavy usability testing, you're going to have a really hard time getting in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say, I think, you know, I, I'm talking about relevant degrees. Um, and I think, you know, marketing is relevant enough for that skill transfer. I think there's a lot of intense research going on about the end user and what their wants are and, and what appeals to them in marketing. And I, I don't think it's that big of a jump to go into UX from that. I think it's it's a matter of applying it to sales versus applying it to design and obviously there has to be some sort of you know learning that happens there but i think it's it's close enough to where there there wouldn't be um you know uh, there wouldn't be discrimination against those who had different degrees uh i don't know that's just my thoughts on it um I feel like one way you could skirt some of this too is if you are like uh, heavily volunteering in like groups related to the field and you're looking for internships because yeah. that might, if especially if you've got like somebody that can help swing your favor or it can like recommend you to a friend of a friend, that might be the easiest entryway if you really just don't have a relevant degree. Because um, th- with internships, you at least get some of that on-the-job training aspect of it. So maybe you're picking up some of the skills. Maybe you're good enough they keep you around so you're able to like really get the education on the job, right. which is always going to be better in my opinion. I agree. Um I, I don't know. The more we talk about it, the harder I think it's going to be without some kind of some kind of at least tangentially related degree. Yeah. Brian, any closing thoughts? I wonder how much marketers learn about ethics and to me researchers really should. Yeah, they really should. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other can limitations. Of <laughs> Blake, any closing thoughts? No. Now I'm just thinking about the ethics of research. Okay, well, that's going to be it for today, guys. Uh, Let us know what you guys think of the stories and the It Came From Reddit today. If you liked them, did you hate them? Uh, If you're a Patreon supporter, please stay tuned for the after show. That's coming soon. The rest of you, you can join us in the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over social media. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at A-Tractors Podcast. Be sure to drop us a comment on our SoundCloud or send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. If you're feeling saucy, leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. That's 901-646-1HFC. Be sure to like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts is out there now, or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. Uh, if you want to join the After Show Party, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast, just like Brian does. And, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank my favorite co-host for being here on the show today, Blake Arnstorff, where can our listeners go and find you if you, they want to talk about 
ethics. Oh, if you want to talk about ethics, you can find me on Twitter at Don't Panic UX. Brian McDonald, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can our listeners go and find you? I am also on Twitter at Brian C. McDonald, and I'm always on the Slack channel. Excellent. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Yes, Aww. we did it all at the same time. That was great. See, this is what we get for doing it in person. It's been great. so long. Y'all. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.